We're continuing with another Evening Under Lamplight podcast. I'm Robert Louis Abrahamson, and we're now on Canto 14 of Dante's Purgatorio, still on the terrace of envy, still encountering new people as Dante and Virgil move along towards where they hope to find the steps up to the next level. We left the previous canto as Sapia finished what she had to say to Dante. This canto begins at what must be the next moment, an opening that can be really confusing. Someone is speaking, but we're not told who this is or whom he is speaking to. Let me stop for a minute and cite Mark Moose's description of the opening of the canto. I think he has the right dramatic angle here. This dramatic opening, he says, is a dialogue between two unknown speakers concerning a person standing before them whom they cannot see. Their voices break upon us unexpectedly without any kind of introduction. The first 126 verses of this canto are devoted to conversation, except for a minimal amount of narrative necessary to set up the conversation, and the canto opens without even this minimal amount. The two speakers will remain unidentified until the second half of the canto. That's Mark Musa. We have to feel our way as we enter this canto, almost as if, well, as if we're blind ourselves. And so we begin with these two voices, who we quickly realize aren't even talking to Dante. They're talking to each other. They, they've obviously heard him speaking with Sapia, and we now overhear them asking each other who this living man could be. Who could he be, says one. I don't know, says the other, but he's not alone. You question him, you're closer. You living soul, this person asks, for the sake of caritas, tell us where you're from and who you are. We're amazed at that dispensation of grace that allows you to come here. Never heard of such a thing happening before. Dante doesn't really answer this in any satisfactory way. He starts talking about a river that winds around the region of Tuscany. That's where my body is coming from. Maybe he says that way because he's learned his lesson from the previous canto and, and knows better than to say he's Florentine or Tuscan. He just says where his body comes from. And there's no point really in telling you my name, he adds. My name won't mean anything to you. I'm not really very well known yet. <laughs> is this the humility he's learned from the previous level and is trying to put into practice? Notice, though, that yet at the end. I'm not really very well known yet. He knows that this divine comedy is going to be such a masterpiece that everyone will soon know his name. But in 1300, Dante's name was known, both in poetic and political or diplomatic circles. Maybe not throughout all of Italy, but certainly throughout his region. Maybe he's gone overboard in his attempt at humility. Now, the second one of those blind men sitting there is bothered and asks his friend, why didn't he tell us the name of that river? It sounds like he's trying to hide something horrible. I'm not sure why he didn't mention the name, the first man says, continuing that initial conversation in front of Dante, but not including him. But he has recognized what river Dante was referring to, the Arno and agrees that the river has such terrible associations that its name should be blotted out, and then begins a long passage describing the progress of the river Arno from its source in the Apennine Mountains down to the sea, passing through various places whose inhabitants he describes in bestial terms, 
hogs, dogs, wolves, foxes. Now, presumably at this point, that second person, look, let's give them their names. We'll find out who they are soon, but we can use their names now. The first one, the one who goes on about the river, is Guido del Duca, and the other one who doesn't speak to Dante directly is Rinier da Calboli. Now, after Guido has listened to the various horrors throughout the Arno Valley, it seems likely that Rinier has somehow tried to stop Guido from going on like that about the area this living man there comes from and will be returning to. It's a little rude to insult his country like this. He, he's only a living man, after all. No, Guido replies, I'm not going to be quiet about this just because he's listening to what I'm saying. It would be good for him to hear what the Spirit has shown me. By the way, he adds to Rinier, your grandson is going to be doing some pretty heinous things in that region too, selling men and having them killed like cattle, ending up covered in blood and ruining that land for more than a thousand years. Rinier's distressful look after hearing this prophecy and the words of Guido have intrigued Dante, and he wants to know more than ever who these two are. He asks them their names and gets a, re gets a reply he wasn't expecting. Well, you wouldn't tell me your name when I asked you, and, and now you expect me to tell you mine when you ask? But look, I honor the divine grace that has been allowed to shine out from you, so why should I begrudge answering the question? I'm Guido del Duca. Then comes Guido's second big speech. First he explains the kind of envy he had felt before he repented. He grew angry and resentful whenever he saw someone else enjoying life, having a good time. Now he's suffering to heal this. He introduces Rinier by name, though he gives us no indication that Rinier was particularly envious. In fact, in fact, he seems to praise the worth of this man. Everything he says shows how far he's coming in his healing from his previous envy. But referring to Rinier's worthiness sets Guido off again. No one else in Rinier's family has continued that worthiness. In fact, the whole land is almost irreparably ruined by the pervasive lack of virtue. And then comes a list of virtuous men from earlier generations. Where are they? It's such a long list that Guido exhausts himself, or, or rather works up such grief at the state of things, that he tells Dante to go away now. He'd rather just weep about this than talk about it. Well, that's one way to make a transition to the next part of the canto. Dante and Virgil set off further along that circle, knowing that by their silence these souls are indicating that they're following the right direction to the staircase they want. And so we see, we see Virgil's faith in the sun to light their way from the previous canto was misguided. It was by sound, not sight, that they find their direction. But they haven't had the bridle yet, the examples of the self-destruction of the sin. These examples now come as voices flashing through like lightning. First we hear what is obviously the voice of Cain, who had murdered his brother Abel because he was envious that Abel's offering to God had been accepted while his offering hadn't been. But the voice doesn't mention this part of the story, only those despairing words Cain afterwards said to God, Whoever finds me shall slay me. And that's the point. His murder, motivated by envy, has led to his fearing for his life from everyone. And then the voice dies away as thunder does. 
I suppose we must then imagine that this voice has come loud and swift, its reverberations only gradually fading away. But as soon as it goes away, another voice comes to them. I am Aglauros, who became stone. Aglauros, who envied her sister Herse because Mercury loved Herse and not her. Here again is envy of one's sibling. There's no murder here, but a kind of brazen indignity. Aglauros's envy took the form of, If you don't want me, then you can't have her and she blocked the door of her sister's bedroom, as if to prevent Mercury from going in. But you don't do that sort of thing to a god, and Mercury easily opened the door, and, as the voice tells us, turned the envious sister into a rock. Are those two stories enough to deter us from falling back into envy? They, they should be, but Virgil comments that most people just get hooked by these sins anyway. These warning stories don't, don't do them much good, well, they should instead readjust their eyes and look up to heaven to see the glory there instead of falling for envy with its petty earthbound pleasures. The canto closes with one last comment about eyesight. It's a matter of controlling our eyes, controlling in which direction we keep looking. This, we have understood, is what these blinded souls have been training themselves to do. It's an unusual canto. There's no introduction, but that immediate question, by who knows whom, and almost all the rest of the canto is taken up in dialogue, or not even dialogue, but one person's speeches. Guido del Duca has the stage most of the time, with a few remarks by Dante and two comments by Renier, addressed because he's shy, self-effacing, ill-mannered, addressed to Guido, but not Dante. Virgil is very quiet until the very end, standing there as he'd been standing there from the second half of the last canto, silently watching. Guido's talk can be broken into two parts. First, his tour of the Arno Valley and the irreparable damage all the vice is doing there. And then his reversal, highlighting some of the glories of the past when people really did practice virtue. The canto ends with the two voices of the disastrous consequences of envy and Virgil's brief lesson about taking the hook that comes down from above rather than being caught by the lure of earthly things. This is also a canto, I'm afraid, in which there doesn't seem a lot that will be really interesting to a general reader. Can we really get all involved with the various places along the Arno that Guido is talking about? Can we even follow, let alone retain, all the names of those virtuous people? Do we read these parts, follow the notes, and then promise that on our next reading of the Purgatorio we'll make sure to spend some time with these details? I mean, that seems fair enough, but let's take something at least from all this. And one thing to notice is that whereas Sapia in the previous canto was an example of private spiteful envy, Guido opens it up to the whole world of public affairs. An envious person would look at contemporary abuses and rejoice that the people he doesn't like have it bad, or he might feel a smug pleasure in criticizing other people, implicitly declaring that he, of course, is above that criticism. But Guido, fierce as he is against these abuses, does not exult or try to raise himself above them. His is righteous anger, 
and perhaps is preparing us for the circle of anger that we'll encounter next. And he can speak of the great people of the past with admiration, not with begrudging half-praise. He says that in his life he would have been livid at the thought of anyone else having a good time, but now he feels grief at the absence of virtuous people. Not envious grief, but genuine, charitable sadness that the old virtue has not lived on. He has his eye fixed above, as Virgil advises at the end. He sees the world as the supportive community that is its ideal. In the place of Cain, he would be glad for his brother that his offering was acceptable of God, and perhaps he would change his attitude so that his offering too would be acceptable. In the place of Agloros, he would support Sister Herse, help her prepare for the visit of Divine Mercury to her bedchamber. After all, what is Agloros going to achieve by trying to block the door? The god just turned her to stone, her body taking on the hardness that was already in her heart. Well, Dante and Virgil have found the staircase to ascend to the next level, but they will have to wait until the next canto to meet the angel who will bless Dante and remove this pea from his forehead so he can go on upwards. And there will be a bit more discussion about envy before they come up to the Terrace of Wrath. We'll see more about that next time.